many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Hey now, superhumans, it's Boomer Anderson, and we're back with another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. We have recorded many of these, and oftentimes we get into subjects that are really close to me personally in terms of both things that I have really sought out to improve in my own life, but also things that I would call quote-unquote weaknesses or opportunities for me to improve. And one of these areas that you guys may have noticed recently that we've been focusing on is the nervous system. And allow me to open the kimono a little bit here. For the longest time, I've had a very strong sympathetic drive. It comes with a history of perfectionism. And while perfectionism has served me to a point, it no longer does so in a very progressive way. And so I'm seeking really to improve the balance in my nervous system. And one of the things that you can definitely do to improve the balance of your nervous system is to improve vagal tone. And if you're wondering what the hell is vagal tone, well, we get into that on today's podcast. As always, I really scour the globe to seek out experts to bring you bite-sized pieces of actionable information which you can use to become more epic, more superhuman. And so when I was looking for a guest to come on to not only help you guys improve vagal tone, but to also help me improve what was a strong sympathetic drive, a book appeared. And that book was called Activate Your Vagus Nerve. And our guest today wrote that book. Our guest today is Dr. Nawaz Habib, and he's an author and speaker who empowers his clients and patients to dig a little bit deeper to find the answers to what is holding back their health. He's gone through his own personal experiences with poor health and weight struggles. And also Dr. Habib is well-equipped to implement personalized recommendations for each one of his clients. He focuses on root cause of health imbalances and addressing them naturally. His patients, as a result, experience optimal health the way their bodies were meant to feel, rather than continuing to deal with the stressors that are holding them back. You can get Dr. Habib's book, Activate Your Vagus Nerve, which is a simple guide to follow and help you identify the major missing piece in many patients dealing with chronic health concerns. By activating the vagus nerve, we can optimize our productivity, focus, energy levels, and it allows us to feel the positive effects of upgraded health. So with a topic that I'm really excited about, what did we get into on today's podcast? We first go and provide a roadmap of the nervous system. Dr. Abib beautifully outlays what is the autonomic nervous system, what is the enteric nervous system. And if those words seem unfamiliar or scary to you, I want you to just stick with it because he does a beautiful job of explaining all of these. We then talk about the vagus nerve and its significance. Why is it very important? Why there is in fact two vagus nerves and why you should pay attention to both. Then we talk about HRV and its relation to the health of your vagus nerve. And finally, because you guys all love actionable pieces of information, we talk about ways to activate and improve vagal tone. This can include some of my favorites like cold showers, but also why I may be instilling a karaoke night in my house in the near future. So if you guys are in Amsterdam, please come by. 
The show notes for this one can be found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Vegas. That's V-A-G-U-S, not to be confused with Las Vegas. And enjoy my episode with Dr. Nawaz Habib. All right, the sponsor for today's podcast is a member of the toolkit that I use on an almost daily basis to upgrade my state of being and have used it actually for the past couple of years. The guys over at Neurohacker Collective have done a fantastic job. You've heard me rave about the original stack as well as Qualia Mind on the show. But now I'm so excited because the suite of products has grown. You have Qualia Focus for that near-term bump. You have Qualia Mind Caffeine Free for all my caffeine-sensitive listeners out there. But their latest product, which just came out, is oh so exciting. It's called Eternus, and it's a 38-ingredient formula containing the most researched and premium ingredients on Earth for supporting cellular health. This is key to combating the symptoms of aging. If you want to check out Eternus, Qualia Mind, Focus, or any of the Neurohacker products, go over to neurohacker.com and plug in the code BOOMER. You'll get an additional 15% off your order. Enjoy. Dr. Navaz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. All right. So this is a topic that I've wanted to do a deep dive on for so long on this show. And it's super, super important. So I'm really looking forward to going into this today. But in order to get started, and I know this is a very broad ask of me, but do you mind just talking about the nervous system, what it is, and why it's so important? Certainly. The nervous system is probably, our our bodies wouldn't function without the nervous system. And that's because it really is truly the communication system between uh, the cells of our body. So every single one of our cells has a specific job. It knows what that job is. It's been genetically programmed to do its own job. And we have certain signals that'll dictate those things. We've learned that through a lot of stem cell research. But the nervous system has specific types of nerves that allow for signals to be sent from one area to another for processing of incoming information, processing and outputs to be relayed to other cells for other topics and tasks to be completed. So for example, our nervous system is strongly involved in every single one of our reflexes. It's strongly involved in higher thinking. It's strongly involved in listening in in our senses and our ability to experience the outside world process all of that information and send a signal to wherever uh, that signal needs to go in order for those cells to then be given the right um, task and the right uh, opportunity to complete those jobs and so it's made up of obviously the brain the nerves that are connecting from the brain to every single one of our cells Uh, We oftentimes forget about, but the enteric nervous system is a very important piece of this puzzle. That's the nerves that surround the gut. I'll touch on that because it's a very, very important piece and very strongly connected to the topic of the book. But essentially, any way that we can connect or get information from one area of the body to another in a rapid way, the nervous system is going to be um, strongly involved in that system. All right, Dr. Ndavaz, you mentioned something there that most people listening to this may not be familiar with, and that's the enteric nervous system. I want to double click on that. Do you mind just explaining the difference between autonomic and enteric nervous systems? Definitely. 
So the autonomic nervous system, and it was actually really beautifully summarized by Jason Moore on a previous episode of your podcast. The autonomic nervous system is any signals that are sent from our brain or upwards to our brain that are involved in automatic processes, processes that we don't consciously need to think about. So we're not consciously thinking about beating our heart. We're not consciously thinking about breathing and expanding our diaphragm and our lungs being able to expand and uh, bring in all of the air. We're not consciously thinking about detoxification and biotransformation processes in our liver. We're not consciously thinking about filtering out and creating urine in our kidneys. We're not consciously thinking about those. And those are automatic processes that occur in the body. Another automatic process that occurs in our body is peristalsis, is the ability for the gut to actually pump food through. And so this is where the connection between the autonomic and the enteric nervous system comes up. So we're not consciously thinking about peristalsis. We're not consciously thinking about absorbing these nutrients. But the enteric nervous system is strongly involved in all of that processing as well. So the autonomic nervous system is made up of the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic is our fight and flight response. It's our stress response. It's a survival mechanism, and it's very, very necessary for our survival. But our recovery occurs in the parasympathetic side. That's the rest and digest system. I also like to add on rest, digest, and recovery because it's oftentimes missed as, as a big component of what the vagus nerve and the parasympathetics do. And so the parasympathetics primarily are signaled through the vagus nerve. And that's why I wrote the topic, uh, um, or wrote on this specific topic is we need to activate that. Now, when we get to the enteric nervous system, the enteric nervous system is an entire set of nerves that surround our gut. They uh, are essential in the performance of digestion, of biotransformation, of elimination. It's very, very important for that system to be functioning very well because that is our connection with our microbiome. And as we know how important the microbiome is, that's a really important piece of the puzzle. So the enteric nervous system is essentially like a second brain um, that we like to call it, but it's, it's very, very important in relaying the messages from the outside body to the brain via the gut. And the gut is, as we know, very, very important in health and in our human optimization. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's talk about the vagus nerve, because this is something that there, there's going to be people listening to this that may not be familiar with it. It's got a lot of attention recently, but it needs more. So do you mind just talking about the vagus nerve and how it kind of connects all these pieces? Definitely. So as we know, there are uh, cranial nerves, nerves that come from the brain in the cranial cavity that are released from the brain and extend to other areas. And these are called cranial nerves. We have 12 pairs of cranial nerves. And the vagus nerve is one of those nerves. It is the 10th cranial nerve. It's uh, of the 12 pairs. It is numbered as the 10th. So cranial nerve 10 is also the vagus nerve. And we have one on each side, the left and the right. Just for simplicity's sake, what we do is we now call it the vagus nerve, even though there's two of them. But the importance of this nerve is truly in, in demonstrated in where it goes. It's the only nerve in the cranium to actually exit, the only cranial nerve to exit the cranial cavity and actually have an effect outside of the, the head and the face. And what it does is when it passes out from the, uh, from the brainstem where it is initially released, it actually has four different signaling mechanisms and four different 
pathways that it signals. And it's so important that it actually travels alongside the carotid artery and the jugular vein in the carotid sheath through the neck. So if, if we ever had any question as to how important the vagus nerve truly is, just think of where it's located. If it's located with probably the two most important um, blood vessels of our brain function and for our, our lives, it, it probably is an important uh, piece of the puzzle here. And so it actually extends down into the chest, into the thorax, and goes, sends a, a branches to the heart, to the lungs, continues on down through into the abdomen and sends uh, branches to the stomach, the liver, gallbladder, pancreas, small intestine, large intestine, kidneys, spleen. I'm probably missing a couple here as well. It essentially goes to every single organ in our abdomen, in our body. Every organ is innervated to some extent by the vagus nerve. And this is where we get our parasympathetic signaling from. We oftentimes will think when, when in medical school or in our chiropractic college or whatever schools people go to, when you think vagus nerve, you think parasympathetic. Funny enough, in my research and, and from a lot of the things that I learned, only 15% of the information that is sent along vagus nerve is actually parasympathetic. Interesting. So there's a lot more information that is actually signaled through vagus that we can talk about as well. But it's essentially, it's a very, very important piece of allowing us to get into that rest, digest, recovery state. But it's also very important in making sure that signals are being sent from all of those organs up and down to the brain. Okay, so one question, and I may have this completely wrong. So if I, if I do, we may edit it out. But um, can I think of the vagus nerve as connecting the enteric nervous system with the autonomic nervous system? It is, it is the autonomic nervous system connecting the enteric to the central. Okay. Interesting. So essentially, it is. I, I would honestly say that it is the gut-brain connection. It is physically that connecting mechanism between the enteric and the central nervous system and the brain itself. Okay. Before we get into vagal tone and all this really cool stuff that I want to ask you, you mentioned that only 15% is para- What's the other 85? So the little bits, the 5% is made up of sensory uh, innervation to the ear. So there's actually a section of skin in the ear, the, the center kind of inner area of the ear. The skin of that area is innervated by, uh, through vagus. So there's actually signals for that. And that's actually important because it can be used for treatment. And that's something that I talk a lot about in the book. Mm -hmm. The other remainder of that 5% is actually motor signaling to the vocal cords, the laryngeal muscles around the vocal cords, the pharyngeal muscles, so the muscles of the back of the throat and the airways, and the muscles that are essentially going down into that area. So we have a little bit of sensation going through it. We have a little bit of motor going through it. And the 80%, the big chunk of information that is sent is afferent information, information from all of the other organs that we've innervated going up to the brain. So it's telling the brain what's going on. It's sending the signals of what's important, what's happening in the enteric nervous system, what's happening in the liver, what's happening in the kidneys, what's actually going on down there being relayed back to the brain. That is the most important piece of the puzzle here. So it's the communication highway in a way. Interesting. And I, and I can't recall exactly the studies as they were, but when you sever the vagus nerve 
that's when all hell breaks loose, right? It absolutely I think they did it. Was it with Parkinson's patients that they did it? So they're starting to, funny enough and sadly enough, um, there's, I believe it was uh, Alzheimer's patients actually okay. that they've uh, they've worked on um, or they've allowed this to occur where they're actually uh, cutting the vagus nerve. And so the effect of Alzheimer's is not being affected in the brain anymore. The problem is that we're then not allowing signaling to occur between those two areas. The issue is that the plaque or alpha-synuclein that's found in the condition is actually transported via the vagus nerve. But the problem isn't the vagus nerve. The problem is where is that plaque coming from? Where is that? Where are those toxins coming from? And that has to be in the gut somewhere. And that's that's where the issue is. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a very uh, allopathic approach to um, a non or something. It doesn't really address the root cause, I guess is what I was trying to say. So let's let's transition a little bit because you mentioned earlier um, Jason Moore and HRV. Uh, when I think of the term vagal tone, um, and I'm a measurement geek, so let's let's go with that. Is the way to measure vagal tone, and before we get into what vagal tone is, is the way to measure it HRV? I strongly believe that HRV is the strongest and most accurate way to measure vagus nerve tone. Absolutely. Okay. And so for those who don't actually uh, are not familiar with that term that we're using, what is vagus nerve tone? So vagus nerve tone is essentially how well are the signals being sent on vagus nerve? Is the highway working well or is it jammed up? If we want to go with a really simple analogy, think of it like a freeway that you're trying to trying to drive down. If there are areas where there's a lot of traffic, if there's a couple accidents, something's occurred in the, the form of like physical damage to the nerve, there can also be just crazy drivers in certain areas that are causing or wreaking havoc on the information that's being sent, then we tend to have lower levels of tonicity or activity in the vagus nerve. And so vagal tone is important because it actually will tell us how strong is that highway of information uh, that's being sent from the organs in the abdomen and the, and the thorax to the brain and the signals that are parasympathetic being sent down from the brain to those organs. Awesome. Now is my favorite part because I'm going to open the kimono a little bit here. I have a very strong sympathetic drive. It's years and years of you know, finance, just being perfectionist <laughs> attitudes, things I'm trying to reverse um, or actively working on. One of the uh, data points that I like to look at all the time is HRV. And from a historical perspective, like I, I view my HRV as chronically low, more just because I have a strong sympathetic drive. One of the ways that, and one of the reasons why we're in touch is because selfishly, I want to improve that vagal tone, improve parasympathetic system, as well as just increase HRV. Let's talk about practical ways to do that. Where do we start here? Because if I'm seeing that the vagus nerve is involved in all kinds of areas in the throat, should I start gargling salt water? Or where, where's the best place to start? Before we get jumping right into it, and I'll get into the practical stuff in a moment, HRV is so important because it is a sign of sympathetic versus parasympathetic. What is happening inside there? And that's what you've noticed with your HRV levels being a little lower. What you're noticing is the signals from the sympathetic nervous system tend to be continuous. They, they are constantly coming in through the sympathetic nerves to the heart, trying to speed up heart rate. So the heart rate will tend to go up um, and the time between beats or the 
uh, interbeat interval will go down. And that's what you're measuring with HRV is the time between beats. With parasympathetic tone, what you're noticing is parasympathetic signaling through the vagus nerve occurs in bursts, in short bursts. And so it will actually work to decrease heart rate and increase the variability or the time between those beats. And so when we're getting a constant sympathetic signal and an occasional parasympathetic signal, we're trying to bring that heart rate down. And if we don't have the strength of that occasional or less common parasympathetic signal, then heart rate goes up and variability goes down. So in order to work to improve the tone of the vagus nerve, improve those parasympathetic signals that are coming to the heart, there are certain exercises, tools, practical applications that we can use to improve the strength of those. The number one place to start is with the breath. Everything revolves around, in my opinion, the breath. Mm -hmm. If we are not breathing correctly, we are not living correctly. And so what we've done over so many years, and I'm sure uh, as a doctor, I've seen this countless times with my patients, is people don't breathe correctly. When I ask them to take a deep breath, they oftentimes are expanding their chest and their shoulders are raising and they're saying, yeah, I'm taking a deep breath. And their diaphragm does not move. They're not using their diaphragm to breathe. And yet when we start to teach them that they need to use their diaphragm, have their abdomen start to work and expand, they can take significantly deeper breaths. And they're shocked at this, but we've trained ourselves that a big belly is not good. And so if I see my big belly expanding and contracting, it's not pleasing aesthetically. And so because of this, over time, we've trained ourselves to stop breathing diaphragmatically. By doing so, we're not allowing the diaphragm to go up and down. And we forget that the diaphragm isn't simply the muscle that allows breath to occur, because everything underneath the diaphragm, when we are using it, is actually getting massaged, is actually getting worked. So all of the organs, the liver, the stomach, gallbladder, pancreas, the small intestine, large intestine are actually getting pumped when we breathe correctly, when we breathe diaphragmatically. In a very simple sense, let's think of if we were starting to be chased by a dog or in olden days by a saber-toothed tiger, okay? In the Paleolithic era, we're being chased by this, this dog or this saber-toothed tiger. We're not going to go and start breathing calmly, parasympathetically, diaphragmatically. We're going to start breathing shallow get into a fight or flight response and run our asses off or we're going to fight. So we essentially have this fight or flight response. And so that short, shallow breath is occurring in our chest. It's our chest breathing and our diaphragm not working. That lack of motion in the diaphragm is sending a signal that we are under stress. We have to get away. We have to be in fight or flight. And so we've trained ourselves to have this automatic function of if we're breathing shallow or if we're not using our diaphragm, we are in a stressful environment. Our sympathetics are supposed to be firing. Whereas when we are calm, when we're relaxed, when we're in a recovery zone and we're actually using our diaphragm, we can be calm. And so this is why the breath is so important, making sure that we have good, calm, happy, diaphragmatic breathing is the number one way to ensure that the vagus nerve is getting the signal to turn on and have parasympathetic rest, digest, recovery signaling going to all of the organs, not just the heart. Mm -hmm. Breath is one. And one of the ways that, so first off, the analogy of the the chest out, sort of sucking the stomach in, going through puberty, trying to impress the girls. Yes. Uh, 
you know, the old uh, Heineken, New Jersey. Um, what's it? Can I have a couple Heineken's YouTube video, etc.? That's what I like to think of as sort of the wrong way of doing things. Um, and let's say you've taken, you know, any one of Tim Ferriss's books, put it on your stomach and felt what it's like to actually breathe through your diaphragm. That's more of the, the better way to do things. I have that, right? Yes, definitely. Okay. So we've, let's say we've now got our breathing down as I breathe through my nose and into my diaphragm right now. <laughs> and we're moving on towards next steps. And I agree. Breathing is absolutely crucial. Where do we head? So the next step is to make breathing tougher. So to attempt to work our deep diaphragmatic breathing into stressful scenarios. So it's like adding a weight onto something that's tough to do. Okay. So adding a weight onto breathing would be cold shower, for example. Splashing your, weight, your face with cold water would be a great idea. What happens to us when we jump into a cold lake or a cold pool? Our body shrivels up. We get very tight. We get into a stressful state and our breathing becomes very shallow. This is why Wim Hof breathing works really well when you can get into an ice bath or do something like that. It's like putting a 50 pound weight on your diaphragm, trying to train your diaphragm. So the same way we try to train our biceps by doing bicep curls, we can train our vagus nerve and our phrenic nerve as well using our diaphragm and, and breathing in that way. So if we add the weight of a minute of cold water on the back of our neck when we're in the shower, that'll add a stressful uh, component, but we're then working our breath. So we consciously breathe diaphragmatically when there's cold water hitting our, our back. So cold showers every morning are a great idea. So two questions that are going to come out of that. First one, the significance of the back of the neck. Based on what you just told me, I, I think it's just because the carotid artery and everything is right there. We'll hit the we'll hit those carotid artery jugular vein area as well, but we tend to find that the sensitivity to cold is very high in the back of the neck. Some people may have it in other areas. We tend to get it as well in the underarms um, as well, and obviously in the crotch region and the genitals. So if we are willing to and able to, Cold water everywhere would be great, which is why ice baths or cold showers, like a, a full extended cold shower would be a good idea. And then the next step is jumping into an ice bath okay. and working your breathing while you're in there. And then the phrenic nerve. The phrenic nerve is a spinal nerve that uh, sends a signal to the diaphragm to have the diaphragm actually expand and contract. Beautiful. All right. So I'm breathing well. I'm now crazy enough to be one of these guys jumping into ice baths, which is actually very popular to do here in the Netherlands, home of Wim Hof. Shocking. Um, what, what should we do next? So this is where we can get into using those other 5% of the nerves, the motor nerves, the sensory nerves. These are where we can actually start using those tools. And you alluded to one earlier. Gargling is actually spectacular. When we speak, we're using our vagus nerve to create tonicity in our laryngeal muscles, the muscles that surround, contract, and expand our vocal cords. And so what I look for when I'm listening to a patient when they're speaking, I'm not listening just to the words that they're saying, but I'm also listening to the tonicity of their voice. Do they have the ability to rise and lower pitch very well? Or do they speak very monotonously and don't have the ability to do so? Because if they don't, that's a sign that their vagus nerve signaling is probably not as strong as it should be. And so that's an important feature in this and making sure that that is working. So what we can do is start sending that signal to vagus. So humming, 
chanting, gargling, any way to stimulate those muscles to really get them vibrating will be very, very effective in improving vagus tone through that motor aspect. So you just licensed me to have karaoke night, basically. Every absolutely night. did. In <laughs> fact, singing, singing is one of those awesome things that I talk about in the book that will, like, I, I preach to people, if you're commuting to and from work, sing your ass off, go for it. Like, just belt it out. It's, it's absolutely, karaoke nights are great. And on top of that, the karaoke nights, if you're going with friends, if you're ha having fun, you're going, you're laughing, laughter is also a really great way to stimulate vagus nerve. Awesome. So is it, suffice to say, are singers or do singers have higher vagal tone than most people? Absolutely. For the most part, I would, I would say that singers, opera singers especially, because they have their breath under control and they have the, the pitch and the range is so well controlled. What they've done is they've trained their vagus nerve to work really, really well. So I'm now singing every day. I'm breathing well. I'm cold showering. I'm jumping into my ice bath every once in a while. What else can I do here? Because I, I, I want like the full vagal experience. Full vagal experience. So if you want to do that, add in a couple of things when you're brushing your teeth. Take your toothbrush and poke the back of your throat, poke the, the soft palate and stimulate your gag reflex because the motor aspect of the gag reflex is a great way to stimulate the vagus nerve motor uh, component as well. So not, it's not obviously the sensory component of the reflex, but the motor component of the reflex is uh, through vagus. And so if you have a good, strong gag reflex, doing it on both sides is really important, by the way, not just straight down the center. Uh, each side of the soft palate should be because our left and right vagus nerves are simulating those nerves or are innervating those muscles separately. So oftentimes I find if people do a gag reflex and their uvula shifts to one side as opposed to going straight up, then there's actually a weakness in, in the one side versus the other. That's fascinating. The vagus and nerve. so when you're looking at a client per se, they're physically inducing a gag reflex and you're kind of staring down the throat and seeing what happens. That's, that's yeah. interesting. So you can do the gag reflex or you can even have them just say, ah, and oftentimes the uvula will pop up and shift to one side. And if you see that happening, the, the side that it shifts towards is probably um, less, uh, less weak or less strong in terms of vagus nerve function. And would that be, let's say, would you be able to observe that in any sort of data point? Like what side would be more strong than the other? I don't have data points for that specifically. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. I, um, I, well, I, I don't think it exists. That's why I was asking. Sadly, I don't think that does exist. So we wouldn't really be able to see. It's more of a subjective thing for each person to optimally have it going straight up the center. Mm -hmm. So now I'm gagging every day, which is going to be a new experience for me <laughs> because I haven't heard that one before. But what, what, I want, again, that full experience. Are there other, like, are the contraptions out there that induce vagal tone, are they worth it? Or are there more men, or sorry, um, less technological interventions that we can use? I am more of a proponent of doing things naturally, of having your body do those things on their own. I'm not a proponent of using um, external signaling unless it's absolutely necessary. There are certain tools out there that can be used to improve symptomatic issues if there are vagus nerve issues that are highly symptomatic. For example, migraines, there's a really great tool out there that um, is, is great for improving migraine uh, suffering by stimulating the vagus nerve using, and it's, it's all like 
FDA cleared and all that good stuff. Um, there are some other tools we can use, like um, other things like that, but I, I like to stick to the natural. Let's go with it because that's easier for everybody too. So when you're brushing as well, I want to add in uh, gargling, which we talked a little bit about. I recommend gargling with salt water. And when you're gargling, gargle really, really hard. So the salt water will help with breaking down some of the biofilm that's being produced by bacteria in our mouth. Um, it'll help break down some of that extra plaque. It's just got a little bit of an extra uh, negative or positive antibacterial effect. And then the gargling in itself, when you gargle, you're stimulating those laryngeal muscles as well. And you're opening up the airway to make sure that you're still breathing. So those are great ways to uh, improve that. But when you gargle, you want to gargle quite rigorously and vigorously and to the point where you actually start to tear from your eyes. That's a sign that your gargling in, is effective in improving the um, the signal and the strength of the signal and the tonicity of the vagus nerve and the actual nuclei in the brainstem that are signaling through vagus. Okay. So I'm gargling every day. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got my cold shower going and I'm now choking. Well, not choking. Sorry, that's <laughs> the wrong word. But I'm inducing a gag reflex in the back of my mouth. Are there other things like humming's a big one, singing in general? Humming and chanting, singing are great, yes. Okay. Where where else do we go from here? Like, what kind of is there interesting? Like, are supplements effective in this? Or are there, there are some supplements that can be effective in this. So, the major neurotransmitter that's important for vagus nerve, the only transmitter that vagus nerve will actually signal uh, to and from through the body is acetylcholine. And so, Acetylcholine, we need to ensure that we have the production ability for acetyl-CoA, and that involves our ability to metabolize carbs and fats really well. So supplements such as B vitamins, B1, B2, B3, carnitine, specifically for the fat metabolism, uh, lipoic acid, coenzyme Q10 are very good. Chromium is also very good for carbohydrate metabolism. So our ability to turn carbs and fat into acetyl-CoA is strongly important uh, in biochemically allowing the acetyl-CoA component to come up. And then acetylcholine has the choline component. And choline is this amino acid that comes from um, certain foods, especially organ meats and eggs. Those tend to have very high levels of choline in them. And so the ability to combine acetyl-CoA plus choline is important. So supplementation of those nutrients to help with metabolism of carbs and fats, as well as um, the food sources that you're getting those organ meats and getting the choline in will be helpful. And then there are some really fun things that I learned through my research for the book, some really interesting tools that we can use to really improve vagus nerve function overall. Oh, let's and go into this. This is great. So this is where we measure HRV to see what the effects are. So sleeping, this is an important one. Sleeping on your back and your front, are ne neither of them are as effective as sleeping on your side. See, sleeping on your side is the best, not only posturally, that's my chiropractic background coming out, but um, sleeping on your side is more effective on HRV levels going up because we tend to be able to breathe better, our posture is better, all of those things are happening the way they should. And um, sleeping on your right side, funny enough, actually had a, a higher HRV increase than on your left minimally it was it was just enough it, it was very mild significant difference and i don't even know how they explain how that happened but that's what they um observed in the in the study that i'm 
citing here. So sleeping on your right side was better for HRV and for vagus nerve function. So uh, sleep, obviously, very important for this. Um, using acupuncture is a really great tool to um, improve autonomic nervous system function. So that area on the ear that I spoke of, uh, the skin on the center area of the ear, is the strongest area where we can stimulate vagus nerve function. And so auricular acupuncture, using um, acupuncture needles by the uh, guide of somebody who's actually trained in acupuncture probably is the best idea. Having them do that will be effective in stimulating vagus nerve from an external source, but again, it's doing so naturally through the stimulation of that skin area. And so for people that don't like needles and don't like doing those things, you can also do some auricular acupressure, um, just using some stimulation of the uh, center area of the ear, I imagine even just small sensations like a feather or something along those lines can be very effective in stimulating that sensory aspect as well. Another really fun one that I found was listening to music. And so certain types of music tended to have improvements in HRV that were not observed with others. Funny enough, classical music was uh, shown to have very high levels in HRV. And then in the classical music realm, Mozart was uh, amongst the best. And there was a specific um, piece by Mozart called K448, Two Pianos, which I did find on YouTube, by the way. So if you do look for it, K, the letter K, 448, Two Pianos. Um, it's about a 22-minute long piece, I believe. And um, that was shown to have the highest increase in HRV out of any of the tested music that they did try. And that was a really interesting study. Interesting. So in that study, was it just sort of point in time, beginning and then after? Or was yeah, it... it was beginning and, uh, and beginning and end. It wasn't a, a prolonged tool, but they noticed that at the beginning of the piece and at the end of the piece, the rise in HRV was higher with that specific piece than in, in multiple others that they had tested. That's interesting because Mozart's always mentioned as the guy who you listen to Mozart thing, you go take your SATs and your SAT score goes up. So fascinating. So I, I wrote this down and I'll of course link to this particular Spotify track if it's available in the show notes, because that's, that's incredible. All right. We need more in terms of these awesome little cool things that we can do with the vagus nerve. So breathing is obviously key. Getting the digestion working really well is really, really important. And so allowing your digestive tract to work properly is really important. And I have a really great test for a lot of people to be able to see what their bowel transit time is. Okay. So I, we call it the bowel transit time test. It was a tool that was taught to me by my mentor, Sachin Patel, who was previously on your show as well. And what he said, and, and it stuck with me for a very long time, is the, the time it takes for food to be released from the moment you take it in till when it comes out should be in an optimal scenario between 12 and 20 hours. That much. Wow. Yeah. And in, in an optimal scenario, you're looking at like a 16 hour timeline. So from when you eat it, it should take 16 hours or between 12 and 20 for it to come out. Okay. So to really test this, what we do is we get our patients to take a spoonful of white sesame seeds and put that into a glass of water. And then you're going to drink that water and you're going to mark down the time at the time that you've done this test or taken that sip. And then you're going to mark down the time when you have your bowel movements. If you start to see those white sesame seeds in your stools, then you mark down the time and say, I started to see it at 
14 hours later. And then you continue to monitor your bowel movements, your stools to see if it occurs later or, um, or, or if it continues occurring or if it's just a one time. And we do two very important things. You choose the white sesame seeds because they're far more visible than black sesame seeds. And you make sure not to chew those sesame seeds because our bodies don't have the enzymes capable of breaking down seeds. That's why we have teeth. So just kind of pause the teeth moment there. And that'll give us the opportunity to see how long it's actually taking for those seeds to come out from when they go in. And so it's called the bowel transit time test. It's one that I speak a lot about in the book. And so testing that is key. And so if we then know that it's happening too rapidly or too slowly, that's a sign that not only the enteric nervous system isn't working well, but also the signal to and from the enteric nervous system through vagus is not very strong. Oftentimes our patients are coming in complaining of diarrhea, constipation, some sort of bowel um, or digestive tract disturbance. This is an important factor in making sure that, that um, whatever is coming in is getting out at a good pace. So uh, just taking it one step further here, would the protocol then be to, let's say it comes through at a pace faster than 16 hours. Yes. Would that be just a signal of something like leaky gut, in which case you would aim to fix the leaky gut before you exactly. move on? Exactly. Okay. And so um, personally, I use functional lab testing to see what's actually occurring there, but this is a great way to screen what's happening. It's a great way to see if it's um, happening in an optimal scenario or not. And so what we will then do, if we notice that it's happening at less than 12 hours or more than 20 hours, then we will use functional lab testing, such as the GI map stool test uh, to see what's going on with bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, the microbiome, everything that's living there. Is that optimized? Is that functioning optimally? And that signal is very important because whatever is living in the gut will signal through vagus to the brain as to what's actually happening. And this is a really important factor here. So if we don't have a strong vagus nerve, then we have less ability to reduce inflammation in the gut. We have less ability to counteract the effects of some of these negative parasites and, and bacteria that might be making their way into the gut. And so it's very important to do so because one of the things that, that we didn't discuss earlier, but very important piece of the puzzle with the vagus nerve is that it actually controls the cholinergic anti-inflammatory system. It actually controls the immune system function, not only in the gut, but also in the spleen and throughout pretty much the entirety of the body. We know that the vast majority of our inflammation levels will start in the gut. We'll start because there are certain toxins, um, food-based proteins, things that shouldn't be getting into our bodies like lipopolysaccharides that can break down the lining of our gut and cause a leakiness. But in order to control the reaction to those to keep the immune system balanced and working well, we need to have good strong signaling through vagus and allowing the cholinergic anti-inflammatory system to do its job. And so if we don't have that, then we tend to have higher levels of inflammation producing in the gut higher immune system function. And this is where a lot of autoimmunity and uh, inflammatory sim uh, symptoms start to pop up with a lot of our patients that we deal with. Interesting. So in a way, you know, somebody comes with you autoimmune condition. One of the things that you're probably running through in your checklist is what's the vagal tone like? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most common occurrences is when somebody comes in and they have some sort of 
IBD, like an inflammatory bowel disease, like a Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, um, or if they are dealing with IBS uh, as well, which is a terrible diagnosis, by the way, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, it's a lot of these are caused by bacterial imbalances and, and not just the population of bacteria, but where those guys are located geographically. We know the vast majority of our bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast should be located in the large intestine. But oftentimes now what we're finding is these bacteria are moving up into the small intestine. And that's where a lot of problems start to occur, where we start to have a condition known as SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And oftentimes it's a very recurrent condition, <clears throat> excuse me. So a recurrent condition because we don't have good vagal tone. We don't have good signaling for peristalsis to be working well. Oftentimes when we have a SIBO case that is eliminated with uh, the right herbals and supplements, it can come back when the vagus nerve is not affected. So recurrent SIBO is oftentimes because they've missed the vagus nerve uh, tonicity and missed getting it working really well. So running through just a protocol for call it IBS or any sort of autoimmune condition, mm -hmm. one could assume that having vagal exercises is probably a good idea, right? It's the first thing I give to my patients um, when they come in with anything where inflammation levels are a little bit too high, or if there's an autoimmune condition, or if there's some digestive dysfunction, the first thing I do, because I don't need any testing really to tell you that your vagus nerve probably isn't working optimally, is let's get you doing a few things at least. So let's get you breathing correctly. Let's get you gargling. Let's get you, if you're open to it, doing the gag reflex, let's get you doing a few things to really improve the function of those uh, specific, of that specific nerve and allowing that anti-inflammatory signal to start working, allowing the digestive system to really start doing the job that it needs to do. And that's the first thing that I'll give to my patients even before we do any uh, functional lab work or anything like that. In terms of rank of priority of these vagal tone exercises, does any one in particular stand above the rest? Like would cold showers stand above the rest or karaoke night at the Anderson household uh, be better? <laughs> I, I didn't find a comparison study to tell us if one was stronger than the other. What I did find was the strongest levels in HRV uh, increased with gargling and with uh, cold showers and deep breathing exercises. Those were the top three. And so what I get my patients to do is start with those top three. And if we aren't having the positive effect that we were hoping, then we can add in some Mozart, we can add in some karaoke, we can add in some other things. But there are those few um, that did stick out as being the most simple to add in, as well as having very good strong effects on heart rate variability and uh, thus vagus tone. So in terms of your clinical experience, then when you're working with a client, you you go through sort of the three main um, exercises or those three exercises for improving vagal tone. What do you expect to see from somebody in terms of improvement other than HRV? So if somebody is listening to this set another way, what can they expect to um, sort of feel over the course of X period of time, and I guess we can define X too if you're able to. Certainly. It depends on how severe the issue is when they come in. The more severe the, the issue is when they come in, the stronger the effect is going to be of these exercises oftentimes. So um, consistency is the key to this, obviously, doing these things on a regular basis. What I find is generally within about 
three to four weeks. We're also changing some dietary things um, during this time. We tend to find improvements in energy. We tend to find decreases of inflammatory markers. And if people have blood work done before versus just after, we're noticing changes on like CRP markers and stuff like that mildly. That's, that's some great improvement generally. And then we start to then work on uh, supplementation and stuff after about four weeks with the patient. But within those first four weeks, we tend to notice improvements in energy, better sleep, and thus recovery because what's being signaled through the vagus nerve is that recovery capability, the ability to uh, take on the stressors of the day and still have the resilience to be okay. And so being able to recover and being calm and relaxed are really key. And so people subjectively are noticing that they have a higher capability of calming themselves down, getting into a restful state and waking up, feeling rested the next day, ready to kind of take on the world. Mm -hmm. And so a sample, just sort of minimum effective dose protocol here. If I'm going to start doing this myself, let's say tonight or tomorrow, is it gargling every time I brush my teeth or, you know, deep breathing? How, obviously I would love to be doing that all day long, but are there directed practices for that? What I find that works really well for a lot of people is about five to six times a day, if you can set some sort of alarm or some sort of reminder to just make yourself sit down for a moment, calm down, sit upright, make sure that you're doing some diaphragmatic work. What I get people to do is put one hand onto their chest, one hand onto their belly, and just sit for a moment and make sure that they're for like pushing and actively allowing their, their lower hand, the hand on their abdomen, to expand with a deep breath and if you do that five or six times a day you start to get into the habit of whenever you catch yourself you can put yourself into a calmer relaxed diaphragmatic breathing state with the gargling i get my patients to do it morning and evening every time they brush their teeth so nice little easy way to do that is keep a glass um, beside your sink beside your toothbrush and keep some salt there as a reminder that this is what i have to do it's just part of my morning routine and then with the cold showers and, and things like that is uh, do your morning shower routine, but for the last minute of that shower, just turn it down as cold as possible, as cold as you can handle. And then you can slowly get into the really, really cold and extend it for the entire length of your, your shower. But if you do that first minute, you're essentially going from a warmer shower to a very cold shower. You're jumping into the lake, as as I put it earlier, and you're going to have that positive effect of adding some weight to the deep breathing exercise. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely fantastic. Dr. Navaz, this is amazing. Uh, I want to transition now into a little bit on the final four questions. The first one, where what is one area where you think people should pay more attention to when they're looking to actually improve their performance? I honestly think the biggest, um, and it's coming up now, people are starting to learn more about it, but recovery is is the most important piece of the puzzle. If we overtrain, if we overdo things to ourselves, if we're constantly pushing ourselves, we're not giving our bodies the opportunity to really recover. And the vagus nerve is so strongly associated with that recovery state, getting into that practice of recovery time, self time, me time, allows us to really get that recovery working optimally. And I think that'll really help drive performance capabilities. Beautiful. What's your top trick for enhancing your focus? I'll, I'll use the one that I kind of did today. This morning, I woke up a little bit 
um, groggier than normal. I don't know exactly why. I just woke up and I just was not ready to jump out of bed this morning. But the top trick that I use is MCT oil. It really does uh, give me a kickstart in the morning. So whether I'm having a smoothie um, to start off the morning or I'm throwing in my bulletproof coffee or something along those lines, um, the MCT oil does really just uh, drive that focus and that performance for me um, when I use it in the mornings. Beautiful, beautiful. What book has significantly impacted you and really how you show up some pick, sorry, let me reframe this question. What book has significantly impacted your life and how you show up to perform in it? It's really difficult to pick one. Um, I'll say the one that really got me started was four hour work week. Okay. Um, that may, that may be the most voted for one on this show. I, by the way. I definitely think that was the one that got me into the mindset, but the one that really um, had a very positive effect on me as well. And my ability to see the world in a little different light was by Vishen Lakhiani, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. I love that book. I love the way that he framed things. I love just the idea that what we think is normal may not be normal and, and we can create whatever our normal has to be. And he just framed it in such a very positive way. I think he's redoing it for next year yeah. or something. Yeah, um, I'm excited to see what he has coming up. Next. And, you know, six phase meditation is one of my favorites as well. So uh, I'm a vision fan. Excellent. And where can people find out more about you? We got to talk about the book because the books and the topic is so timely and needed so where can people find more i tried to make the book as simple to follow as possible um very simple guide to to read through um you can find out more about the book at vegasnervebook.com try to spell it correctly it's not the same as las vegas it's v-a-g-u-s <laughs> vegasnervebook.com that's uh specifically there i have some uh bonus interviews that i've done with uh with some experts in the field of improving recovery and health and uh, creating a space where you're going to be able to allow that to occur. So you can just sign up for the bonus interviews there at vegasnervebook.com. You can also order the book on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, essentially anywhere online. Um, my publisher has been great in getting that out to everybody. And um, you can learn more about me at my website, drhabib.ca. That's D-R-H-A-B-I-B.ca. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Selfishly, I'm going to be changing a lot of my routines after this discussion. So I am eternally grateful for the work you're going to be doing in the near future for my my Vegas Nerve. So It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for inviting me on and for sharing in this discussion. It's been awesome. Awesome. So we're going to put the show notes for this one at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Vegas. That's V-A-G-U-S, not to be confused with Las Vegas. And Dr. Habib, thank you again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans, before you go, two asks from me. Number one, if you can head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and just give us a five-star rating, it really helps get the word out. Number two, if you can... Give us a little feedback. Send us an email at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com. Those of you that have actually taken advantage of this know that I read and respond to each one. Thank you so much for listening and have an absolutely epic day.